Hey, it's Bax, and welcome back to Baxi's Musical Podcast. We're brought to you today by Canna Provisions. Canna Provisions is an adult-use cannabis dispensary with the largest selection of cannabis products in western Massachusetts with locations both in Holyoke and in Lee. They offer a warm, unique shopping experience with guides rather than bud tenders. In fact, they're not just a dispensary, they're a destination. Visit CannaProvisions.com, CannaProvisions.com, adults 21 please, and please consume responsibly. And now, Baxi's Musical Podcast. What is it? What is it? It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. The one thing that tends to be true about music is that nothing really lasts forever. The Rolling Stones, for example, are going on their 60th anniversary tour this year. 60 years. But how many of their songs do you recall since 1981? Probably not that many, even though they've released seven albums of largely forgettable music since Tattoo You, and yet it's likely to be one of the top-grossing tours of the year. And that's okay. The thing that is a constant is that things constantly change. Bands come and go. They break up. There are missteps. There are soured relationships between artists and managers and record companies. And sometimes the pressure to succeed is so great that some buckle under the weight of all of that pressure. And sometimes things change because the devoted audience that you once built and enjoyed has now moved on to other things. So what happens when the hits stop coming and your relevance becomes a distant memory? What happens when your best work no longer sells or when your best work goes unmatched? Some people are able to go on and endure. Some people are not so lucky. Between drug addiction, bankruptcy, divorces, depression, some simply are unable to cope with the high price of lost fame and the perception of failure. My guest today is Nick Durden, the author of a book called Exit Stage Left, The Curious Afterlife of Pop Stars. It's a fascinating book in which he speaks to more than 50 rock and pop stars whose careers have all hit various peaks and valleys. This is my conversation with Nick Durden on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hello, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Rip right through the book. Really, really enjoyed it. One of the things that... Thank you. One of the things that I thought was just so interesting, you know, everyone goes through you know peaks and valleys in their lives mm. and in their careers. But what's interesting about specifically the people you, you talk to is that how they dealt with the transition of their careers are very, very different. But there are real similarities, yes. especially early on when you know, when suddenly they start to see their careers, you take a turn. I mean, do, do you think it's just, it's just like a very mm. human reaction to things or is just it all really kind of based on on the individual no i think you're right i think it's probably a very human reaction you know when our metal is tested when suddenly life gets tough we have to work harder at it and i think what's particularly interesting about pop stars people in the music world is that they're fairly audacious in terms of their character and they're they're, they're aware of their gift so these are people who have had I don't know, they're they're like their wildest dreams have come true. And I don't know anyone in my own personal circle throughout my life who's even dared to try and make their dreams come true because it just seems too unreachable. Whereas these people at the age of 18, 19, 20 did. 
they convinced themselves that they could not only write songs but perform them on a stage in front of thousands and thousands of people and have millions of people sing them all over the world so i think when they've achieved something like that they have a kind of greater sense of confidence about themselves mm -hmm. so when things do get difficult later on in life as as it does for all of us for all sorts of reasons they're actually quite good at foraging a way through because they've achieved something once they can achieve something again even if it's not at the same level but they've got this kind of steely-eyed determination to see them through and i found them quite worthy of admiration i think i came away from a lot of these interviews yeah just reeling in admiration at, at them thinking god they are they are some tough characters aren't they <laughs> well i mean it, they, they're certainly <laughs> more humanized after reading the book you know you just you know, yes yeah. so often you can look at the at the headlines and say you know that they all belong in the where are they now file but you know the, yes. the fact of the matter is you know every everyone does experience changes in their in their mm -hmm. lives what What's remarkable to me is that you were able to get these people to, to talk to you at all. I mean, in some, in, in some cases, they really allowed their vulnerability to show when they could very easily have just kind of, you know, recessed into obscurity and hope that no one asks the questions, you know, what happened to you? You know, didn't you used to be that guy? Yes, you are. The, you're not the first person to kind of point that out. And um I suppose I was surprised myself. I've been a music journalist for years and years now, like 30 years. And normally when you interview pop stars and rock stars for, for magazines and newspapers, it's a fairly familiar narrative. You are speaking to heroes. You are speaking to those people that we put on, you know, who, we take out posters from old fashioned magazines and put them on the wall and we idolize them. And yeah, they are, they're kind of avatars, aren't they, for superheroes. And when, when I would go all over the world to interview them, we'd be talking about their new album, their amazing tour, the fact that they've just been nominated for umpteen Grammys and Brit Awards, and the fact that everything is good in life. So to, yeah, to dare to talk to them about a time of life when it's not going so well. I, uh, for a while, I did think, what have I kind of taken on here? And will anyone open up? And I have to say, it's true to say that, you know, many didn't want to talk to me because it was too painful a subject. Certain rock star managers came back to me saying, I'd love my artists to be in this because I really want them to get to think about the next stage of their career. But then for whatever reason, the interview didn't happen because they didn't want to go there or they didn't want to go there publicly with <laughs> someone like me. And, you know, I don't blame them. But the ones who did opened up to me in a way that kind of really surprised me and I think that's why I came away with even more admiration for them because they wouldn't have opened up to me like that for a newspaper or a magazine and I suppose in certain cases people had stopped coming to them to talk about anything much because they weren't zeitgeisty anymore they weren't in the spotlight and having been listened to once a lot they quite liked the idea of being listened to again but also they quite like the idea of, of, yeah, of talking about life and, and just <laughs> what a bitch it can be sometimes. You know, this is a book full of pop stars, but it's not really about music. So I'm not talking to them about a middle eight. I'm not talking to them about a particular song. I'm talking to them about how we, all of us collectively negotiate our way through the hard points of life and kind of make it good again and I think in almost every case in the book even some of the sadder stories they have come through it 
and they are still in a way living what their best lives or at least an approximation of their best lives you know they haven't given up right and they still kind of keep on and i think that's quite interesting one of the things that you mentioned a number of times in the book and i and i thought this was interesting because i never really you know considered this but you know and now that having read it i can see where it's a possibility <clears throat> you mentioned a few things about <clears throat> some of these artists going through almost like a a ptsd reaction and, yeah, yeah absolutely and you know yeah i would never have really thought of that but when i think when you're when you're when you go through your your early part of life you know pushing to get this uh, this addictive applause and adulation and validation yeah. and then to suddenly kind of be on the outside of that you know craving those things back um i can now understand how ptsd might really play a part in how these folks you know process you know, a, yeah. a, a dramatic change in, in their lives, no different than anybody else that, that, that suffers through, through that kind of disorder. Yeah. It, it's a crazy way to live a life, isn't it? Most of us grow up and get normal jobs and, you know, work in offices and do normal things. These are people who decided they are going to write words that rhyme for a living and then try and set them to music. So in, in all the years I've interviewed people every time, you know, and, there's also scope for promotion very, very quickly. So all it takes is one or two hit singles and you've gone from the mailroom to CEO position. So yeah, that kind of ascent turns you crazy. You suddenly have a load of yes people around you who will indulge your every whim. You no longer really function as a human being in the way that you and I do, because if you need something to eat, you will go out and get it. If you need an airplane ticket, you will go online and buy it. They will have people to do it for them because they are terribly important and also because they are making an awful lot of money for the industry. So I guess they get used to that. So when it disappears, then they essentially, they are like the astronaut that falls back down to Earth and they have to reacclimatize to the same air levels that we all breathe. And yeah, so I've seen throughout my career as an interviewer of pop stars, a real schism that they were up there and now they're down there and they're thinking hang on it can't be over i can't be in inverted commas normal all of a sudden because i'm not i've got this super you know this supercharged gift i should be back up there back at the top of the mountain and so i do think it's it it, it sends them a little bit potty a little bit mad and so yeah to kind of come back down is it's difficult for any of us if we've lost a job or we we, we break up and we're divorced we are sometimes pining or if we're not pining then we're still trying to get used to this new terrain and for pop stars because they do it in a public arena i think it makes it even harder for them because there's a lot of people in the book who used to be famous who then run out of money or they've spent all their money on drugs or they've bad investments and suddenly they're looking for government assistance and they have to sign on every week because they can't afford the rent and people recognize them and they start singing their songs to them and it's a very alien world that they suddenly occupy and it takes them a while to learn how to live amongst us again. <laughs> there's, there's also a good number of, of them who have, who have used music as a way of um, su you know, suppressing certain you know, issues that they may have, certain you know, yeah. insecurities that they have. Yeah. And, and many of the people in the book just appear to have been ill-equipped to handle things like mm. your fame and, and sudden wealth mm. and then to 
And then to have to lose that or to see yeah. you know, tra- major transitions in that, you know, you still have those same insecurities, although they may yeah. be masked by, by, by fame and the glitter of, of it all. But I mean, it, it is true that, that many of them just simply are not really meant to be at that level. Yeah. And also, as you, you know, you said earlier that we tend to two dimensionalize pop stars. They do look great on our bedroom walls. When you, if you're in this position where you get to meet them, they're actually really sweet and vulnerable people, just like everybody else. And, and you know, they they have difficulty in every area that we do, but they put on this facade, this armor, in order to face crowds. So yeah, so when when you deal with the real person, yeah, they are just as inept in in many cases as as we all are. And so the moment I interviewed them and talked about this for this book they were human beings and uh, and so my, my you know my heart kind of went out to them thinking that it's it's very easy to write them off or look up you know somebody like lady gaga and think oh my gosh she's just teflon nothing can touch her but of course now the pop industry is so much more open in terms of mental health that we know that lady gaga struggles with all sorts of health conditions and to get up on stage and be that superhuman person that we see and fawn over takes an awful lot of work so yeah so the people in the book who have had their moment and are mm. now down on the other side they are they kind of struggle and and, and they miss and they, they didn't perhaps save as much as they should have done and they don't know what to do next with the rest of their life because if they're told that their moment in the spotlight has ended when they're 27 years old what do they do for the next 50 years and that's a topic that i try to get into yeah in the book what do you do for the rest of your life you know, it, 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 it's funny. I mean, you, you talk about being a, a music journalist for a good long time. I, I've been in radio for 35 years. And mm. one of the things that uh, that I have observed in, in, in the interviews that I've done um, is that when, when an artist is beginning and they're making the rounds and they're just getting their feet wet and they're, you know, they're, they're like, like the trajectory is about to send them into a higher stratosphere. Yeah. At that point in their lives, it's all a big fantasy. You know, it's it's all yes. they're all getting swept up in the moment. But when you talk to someone who has been through it and has matured and they're not so much swept up in that fantasy and they're just willing to talk about, you know, their lives and their hobbies and and, and things that may not necessarily be purely about music. As soon as you start to crack that, you know, that facade a little bit, you realize exactly what you're saying, that these are in yeah. fact human beings some of them are are really interesting nice people some of them maybe not so much but (laughs) but but you do you do realize that you know that there's a difference that the years and sometimes the up and ups and downs really you know create the character uh of of these people and it's it's really interesting to see i'd almost rather interview someone who has been around for a while than someone who is just emerging and doesn't really know or have the life experience to really share with people beyond their music. Yeah, absolutely. There's nothing really to say if you're really young, and there's nothing wrong with that. When I was 21 years old, starting out as a music journalist, there was nothing more exciting than interviewing a band whose average age was 21. But then, uh, yeah, as you go on and you interview bands, as you grow older as well, you realize that they have so much more to say, but also that their songwriting takes on new and deeper shades, and they become more resonant. So they're one of the themes that seems to come up quite a bit in the book is that 
unlike in other art forms where we're interested in, in an artist's entire career trajectory. So, for example, we still watch Martin Scorsese films, even though he's in his 70s, and we might still, you know, we read Charles Bukowski until he was at death's door. With pop stars, because music is so knitted to the, to the physical, to the way they look and the way they present themselves as well, loads of pop stars are led to believe that they write their best music and are their, their most appealing between the ages of 23 and 27. And there is a certain logic there, isn't there? There's something really exciting about a band breaking out when they believe they're going to take over the world just with a few pop songs. You love that kind of naivety and that bravado. But as they get older and onto their third divorce and they've had rehab and they're losing their hair or they're putting on weight or, or, or they're just feeling disillusioned or, or they've got a really nice dog and they love, you know, they found another <laughs> interest in life. Something happens to their songwriting. And I feel that in a way it becomes more resonant as they get older because they are soundtracking their lives and correspondingly ours as well. So I quite, the older I get, the more I like listening to, to pop stars who are perhaps approaching the autumn of their career because there's such pathos there and there wasn't pathos in their 20s because in their 20s all there is is ambition and to be honest that's what we really want to hear from a young pop star it's uh, interesting how often uh in the book someone will say how uh like their worst fear would be to become a nostalgia act and that there's, yeah. a, there's this revulsion about i don't even i don't even know how you describe describe it is whether you're you're there's a fear of embracing the music that your fans really want to hear, or if yeah. you only want to be known for that one song that you did. I mean, there's, there's countless examples in the book of, of, of just yeah. that. What, what do you think fuels that rev revulsion <clears throat> of being a, a nostalgia act? Well, it must be really strange. Again, I think this is almost unique to music. I mean, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but, Again, you know, going back to those other art forms, can you imagine if Margaret Atwood was only ever asked about A Handmaid's Tale? And of course, she is asked about that an awful lot, but she recently won the Booker Prize. She's treated like, you know, royalty, like, you know, the most important writer justly as well. So, but she will come out with a new book and people will want to read that. Scorsese will come out with a new film and they won't say, yeah, but tell me about Taxi Driver again, because <laughs> they'll want to talk about the new film. So if you're a creative, and you wrote this amazing song when you were 21, but as far as you're concerned, you also wrote a fantastic song when you were 42 and 65, but people only want to talk about the song you wrote in 1978. That must be incredibly frustrating because your part of you is preserved in aspect. So for the audience, it's lovely because you, you, you are this portal to nostalgia so they can go back and relive their youth off your back. But you are constantly writing and you are you consider yourself an artist thinking, well, hang on, I'm better now. I still have more to say. Can I please, you know, perform my new song? And can you stay here and listen? You know, whenever the, the Rolling Stones tour and they seem to tour, you know, fairly regularly, no matter how old they get, no matter how many people die off, they are still touring. But they are playing the hits. And the moment they do their solo bits, everybody gets up and goes to the bar. Right. So that must be quite difficult for them thinking, well, but we are still writing new songs, but we, the audience, tend not to allow them to do that in the main. And I, I suppose I can see that that must be quite frustrating for an act who is getting up every morning and writing a song a day. 
Well, you 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 wrote about a couple of artists that uh, where that's true. Uh, Joe Jackson would be a good example of a guy who spent his entire career. Mm. I mean, he had his hits, but he spent his entire career mm. always looking for a new genre to yep. to discover. And whether you you know, like what he is producing now, as opposed to back in the '80s, where mm. you know "Stepping Out" was a big was a big hit. Mm. Some of his more interesting music has just been released in the last ten years. And, yes. and that's and that's always been the case of, of, of him. You, Rufus Wainwright would be another guy who just said, yeah. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I if, love that. Yeah. If, if I'm the, going to be Beethoven now. <laughs> right. I mean, if the fans want to follow me, wonderful. But this is what's inside of me. And this is what I have to get out of my system. I, I think yeah. it's a pretty it's bold, but it's also I can see where, you know, the reaction to those kinds of bold strokes could be pretty frustrating for for guys like you know Wainwright and, and and Joe Jackson. Yeah, absolutely. And many people, I suppose, yeah, you have to make peace with it and with yourself. So, I think a lot of the cases in the book, if you've made sufficient amount of money, and many pop stars do, you know, in the in their purple patch, then they can do what they want. And if they lose fans, so be it. So yeah, Joe Jackson hasn't been on my radar for a long time. And if I listen to him, I'm more inclined to go back to stepping out because that was one of the many soundtracks of my youth and I love it. But he's really happy doing what he's doing now. Another example in the book, well, there are many, aren't there? There's, you know, there's Joan Armour Trading, there's Natalie Merchant, mm-hmm. and there's Suzanne Vega, you know, Suzanne Vega's commercial peak was 1987 and she wasn't ready for her commercial peak to pass, but it passed. So she thought, well, okay, but I'm going to carry on doing what I'm doing. And she can tour forever and she can you know do a do a broadway show if she wants to do so she'll never be number one again in the charts and maybe a little part of her would want that but she's saying well look you know things could be worse it's a first world problem i had it but now i'm going to continue doing what i'm doing and if it's a smaller level that's okay so all of these people that i spoke to would say that yes they will play the hits but they will also play the new songs and if you don't like those new songs tough (laughs) which is fair enough because they are the authors of them and they are right. i suppose able to behave as they as they please you you mentioned natalie merchant she's she's one of the uh, the artists uh, in the book uh tanya donnelly would be another one who at some yeah. point said okay you know what i've I, I, maybe i've had enough maybe it's time to do other things in my life very far away from making records and mm. having hits and all the you know she yeah. natalie merchant specifically went on to teach and tanya Don, uh, donnelly went on to I think it was uh, become a doula or or, or doula. something, something yep. like that, and that's uh, right. That's a pretty. Uh, I think that's just a remarkably brave thing to do, or, or to just decide that okay, now I'm going to take a complete shift and not worry yeah. about music. If it comes, it comes. But right now, I want to focus on yeah. some of the other things that I'm also interested in. I I, I got to yeah. applaud artists who take that kind of risk. But that's interesting that you say that because I feel the kind of same way that we feel that if people do walk away from music voluntarily, it's incredibly brave. So there is this suggestion that music is such an all-encompassing thing to do and it's such an amazing thing to do. So if you have the gift to do it, surely you're going to do it until the day you die. And if you walk away from it, we can't quite get our heads around the fact that people would dare or, in your words, you know, be brave enough to do it. But I feel now that slowly people within music are learning from the the you know the, the pop stars of the past that this isn't 
the kindest industry to exist in is it you know not only are you at the the behest of fickle fans but the industry wants it, it, it thrives on new and novelty so but bands always used to you know run desperately to keep up because they wanted to remain current to continue having a career now a lot of them are saying you know what i didn't really like that giddy carousel of fame anyway and i am going to step off it not you're going to push me off i'm going to step off so yeah the idea that tanya donnelly thought you know she she won a Grammy and thought, my band, Belly, were never supposed to be that kind of band. I don't really like all of this attention. I love the success, <laughs> but the attention is a bit too much. You know, she, she, she comes from blue collar background. She, you know, her parents worked for a living. She thought, I'm going to do the same. I'm going to work for a living. And Natalie Merchant did the same thing and started to teach arts and crafts voluntarily. She doesn't take a, a salary for underprivileged kids in New York State. What is interesting is that both of those artists and many others in the book, even if they do find something that they particularly like and perhaps find even more fulfilling than the ephemeral business of writing songs, even they come back and announce another tour and, and, and get the band back together. Right. But so they just balance it. They find some kind of balancing out, but they do so on their terms now and will no longer be dictated to by a recording industry. And I suppose in the days of social media and streaming, it's never been easier for a band to employ that DIY ethic. But it is interesting in in the same in, in the same conversation about you know the uh, the nostalgia act when an artist does decide to go back out on their own terms and and do it the way they want to do it, that it often becomes you know pretty successful and you know they realize mm. that their music as you know as mm. far back as it may go still has a place in mm. in in people's lives mm. and you know nostalgia you know i can i can see mm. on one hand why that might be frustrating to always have to play you know uh <laughs> certain songs but on the other hand yep. you know those songs are important to people and not just yeah. to the artists like mm. they really resonate and yeah, i think, completely yeah yeah it, it it's uh it's interesting because you know uh i i worked at like I said, in radio for a number of years, my first radio station was a uh, was in the late '80s, early '90s, and it was a primarily a hair metal uh, radio okay. station. That's what we were <clears throat> what we were playing. And then you know, you know, at the height, you know, everything was about you know spandex and teased out hair. And then suddenly, almost immediately, it evaporated, uh, mm. and it became immediately irrelevant. And yeah. And and rightly or wrongly or fairly or unfairly, you know, people's musical taste just changes over time, and certain things yeah. resonate with with people. We are fickle, aren't we? We we are fickle, and and so many situations in in the book, and even people that I've talked to, have been a victim to that. Like they felt yeah. like my career has now been shut down, not because of anything mm. that I've done but because of what people perceived I'm not. And that's really, yeah. that's a brutal uh, realization for anybody to, to, to take on. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a brutal industry, as we were saying earlier. A few years ago for a newspaper over here in London, I interviewed former comedians. So obviously they're still comedians, but they're comedians all the way over there now. They're no longer on TV. They're no longer on the radio. And what was interesting compared to the people I interviewed for the book, a lot of them were really bitter. They were furious that this new comedy had come along and they're thinking, hang on, am I not funny anymore? I know funny, I invented funny. And they were furious. And I did think that perhaps the pop stars would be as well, but 
they're not and i suppose because music has this eternal afterlife so if you walk away from music or if music walks away from you and pushes you away your songs those songs those hits that you had whenever way back when kind of still work for you and they will keep you fresh and in you know in the present tense in the minds of many and so those artists who have found some kind of peace with the fact that they might just be a nostalgia act now it's not a bad life to lead and that's what many of them told me that it kind of almost reminds you that music in its own way is pure magic that they can get up on stage they're not singing new songs but they're playing a song that was big when i you know in 1985 for example and the sheer joy that they prompt in an audience is 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 addictive it's an aphrodisiac and they mm -hmm. think i'm 55 i'm 65 i'm 70 and i can just play a song that was a hit 50 years ago and look at this sea of smiling faces i could be working for a living i could be destitute instead I am being adored. So that's not a bad way to live a life. So yeah, those people who have found peace, they are, they're living an amazing life. It's, it's a very pleasurable one because they know they are giving so much pleasure. And yeah, I, I kind of found that they'd, they found this peace later in life. And another interesting thing that came from the book was that Going back to what I said earlier about, you know, you write your best, supposedly your best, most exciting songs between the ages of 23 and 27. Many said to me that nobody wants a middle-aged pop star because none of us particularly like middle age. Midlife <laughs> is a complicated liminal time. None of us look our best. But if we can live through that and reach older age, then suddenly we are reevaluated, we are venerated. So if you look at the, the late careers of everyone from David Bowie to Dolly Parton to Leonard Cohen, you know, um, Bob Dylan, who just recently had his first Billboard number one album at the age of 78. <laughs> if they get to that stage and, you know, they're silver foxes, for want of a better term, we suddenly think, oh, my God, they're still here. They're amazing. They're legends. And we love them again. And I, I imagine that Madonna's third act will be absolutely fascinating so she's had a, a tough time critically recently right but she's always reinvented music as she's gone along so the idea of madonna being 65 and then 17 and still making music is going to be fascinating and we will all look at her then to see how she deals with the end and so yeah music kind of never goes away and nor do the pop stars so it increasingly i feel it's it's a job for life in a world where none of us really have jobs for life there's a there's a, a a couple artists I want to ask you about because I thought their their stories were really quite interesting. There, there's a number of uh, examples in the book of certain people almost aggressively trying to dismantle their careers. Uh, I interview, mm. I interviewed uh, Chris Franz from Talking Heads uh, about a year and a half ago, and uh, okay. and you mentioned uh, in your book uh, when he uh, tried uh, in <laughs> very hard to produce Happy Mondays. Uh, yes. which is the band that had been produced by Martin Hannett, and they were going to be like the next big thing uh, in the early 90s, and they were a great mm -hmm. band, but they but they came with a lot of baggage, whether it was, <laughs> I mean, a ton of baggage, like between uh, drugs and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and it, you know, physical injuries and, and you know, one thing after another with this band. It, it's almost like they were a, a, not just destined to fall apart, but it's almost like they were bulldozing their way <laughs> into falling yeah. apart. Tell, yeah, tell, which me, is, tell yeah. me about them a little bit. Well, that's what made them so fascinating. And in, in many ways, such a unique story. Drugs is normally the undoing 
of a band. And there are stories in the book from other acts that drugs really has been the thing that torpedoed not just their career, but their lives. Happy Mondays, drugs was absolutely intrinsic to the creative process. And so, yes, when, when Happy Mondays were always going to implode, and when they did, you thought, well, that's it. Sean Ryder, the lead singer, is just going to spend you know, the rest of his days in a corner of some stinking pub somewhere telling his war stories. And instead, he reinvented himself, got a new band together, Black Grape, who were even more successful for a briefer time uh, than the Happy Mondays. And he has had the most unusual afterlife, I think, of any modern pop star, because over here in the UK, he is now essentially the world's most unlikely national treasure. He's on daytime TV. <laughs> He's learned not to swear anymore, because whenever he was put on TV, he would swear. And, you know, many, many presenters have been banned because of having Happy Mondays and Sean Ryder on. But now he's done stints on reality television. So he's on morning TV shows over here where he's sweetness and light and charm, irascible charm, but still charm. He's written books or at least had books ghosted for him. He's had newspaper columns. He's indulged in his love of UFOs, but, you know, on various TV channels over here. Um, Bez, who was the maraca player and dancer in Happy Mondays. I think he's been on Dancing with Ice and he's been on Celebrity Big Brother. So they are people who in the in the you know history books of music should have basically should have expired at the age of 27 but here they are <laughs> approaching 60 and they are living their best lives there so they are basically now not so much in music as as in the entertainment industry um so you know that that saying what doesn't kill you makes you tr stronger i don't think they've ever been stronger they don't think they've ever been in a better position they've paid off all their debts they have new teeth i think sean has a new hip um so you know so music has kind of given them a life and also rescued them and saved them along the way and he tells his story which with such chaotic charm that he is this unlikely beacon of hope and music did that for him and i just think that's um just a lovely <laughs> unlikely heartwarming story the uh the other one i wanted to bring up and i and i actually thought this was maybe the most I don't know. To me, it was like really the most remarkable story. And, and that would probably be about Bob Geldof, you know, a guy mm. whose whose music career uh, was uh, was very successful as early MTV hits. Uh, you know, yeah. And, and all of a sudden they could not replicate their their musical set uh, success. And yeah. the band wind up fracturing and becoming uh, you know, more irrelevant in a pretty quick period of time. But what's mm. really interesting is after that, when, you know, his life is, you know, kind of going nowhere, Bob Geldof decides I'm going to start feeding, uh, you know, starving children around the world. <laughs> and, you know, he, the, you know, do they know it's Christmas? And then live aid, you know, comes around and all of a sudden Bob Geldof, who had been largely in obscurity trying to get his mm. musical career back even playing in live uh, live aid and not really getting much traction musically suddenly beca you know, becomes this international treasure a living saint and gets he gets knighted mm. by the queen and what he realizes i hate this even more <laughs> than not having a musical career because i think bob geldof is just looking at himself as just a human being, not one that's necessarily elevated for, yeah. for, for charity. I think it's just, just like a really interesting observation of, of his life. Really, really fascinating. 
And also it proves again, doesn't it, that nothing quite satisfies a musician as much as music. So once you've had it, that's it, you're hooked for life. So he told me that when when the band, they're, they're, they were a little bit before my time. I was aware of, I, I don't like Mondays, but I wasn't aware of them in the mid 70s. Um, but he said that his band came along to blow the cobwebs out of the British charts, which he thought was very stale at that time. So he loved that the band was successful and they kicked out all of the old school. So when it happened to them just 10 years later, when he was barely 30 years old, he was furious and shocked and immediately depressed and as yes, he was one of the many people who just thought well what do i do with the rest of my life it can't be over already and yes not many pop stars go on to feed the world afterwards so he had an extraordinary career because after feeding the world he went on to become a wildly successful businessman and entrepreneur he would invest in companies tech companies um, he said he wasn't very savvy in terms of tech but he liked names. So if he liked a particular name of a company, he would, in, he would um, invest in it. I'm sure it wasn't that simple, but that's how he <laughs> sold it to me. And then made- We, we, we should all do that. <laughs> yes, we should all do that, yes. And be as lucky as him. But so even that didn't quite satisfy him because he felt that he had been put on the planet to stand on stage in front of thousands and jump up and down in, in a pair of leather trousers that he could fit into comfortably. So- while he was obviously making an awful lot of money, all he ever wanted to do was carry on. So his solo career over here in the UK wasn't huge, but he pointed out to me quite pertinently while we were, I was interviewing him, that he was very big in Italy and very big in Germany. So he still had pockets where Bob Geldof, the singer, could draw a crowd. And then um, I think it was 2013, the Boomtown Rats finally got back together and toured and then in 2019 there was a very loving documentary made over here for the BBC the kind of documentary that tends only to be made for bands once they've died <laughs> so it's almost he was alive to watch his obituary people like Sinead O'Connor and Bono saying what a genius he was what an amazing band they were so of course the band got back together again to play some concerts and he said and he certainly looked as if he'd never been happier you know 67 years old on stage in Ireland and, and also all over the world, Australia, um, maybe America for all I know, playing live. And that was as satisfying and probably more satisfying to him than anything else he'd done in the interim because he wasn't a saint, he was a rock star and that's all he ever wanted. And so many people, in, not just in my book, but so many people in music, that's all they want to do, I guess, because nothing is quite as fulfilling, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, you know, we started this interview off talking about uh, you know how everybody experiences you know success and and failure, and, and you and you pointed it out. I mean, this they're living a like a fantasy life, and that yeah. to yeah to either no longer have it or to see it change dramatically. I think it takes you know someone who's very resilient to keep mm. at it and and to keep going you know into it and and you know, exploring music. I mean, there, there are a couple examples in the book where people just felt like, you know, music is gone. You know, I can, I can mm. no longer produce music because I don't have this or I don't have that. But the fact of the matter is there are plenty of people that say, mm -hmm. okay, I don't have those things, but there's still plenty in, in me that's, that's, that's left yeah. to share. And yeah. I think that's really interesting how, you know, some people are able to get beyond themselves and beyond circumstance and how some people just simply keep getting in their own way. And I just, yeah. And yeah, it's really interesting how that, uh, how that works. And the, and the book is loaded with examples of, of, of exactly that. 
Well, it's the word that you used, resilience. And I kind of felt after interviewing a whole bunch of them, I thought they've got quite a lot in common with with alternative health practitioners or self-help gurus, you know, like a Tony Robbins figure. They've got this light in their eyes, I guess, because going back to what we said earlier, they have they have visualized their wildest dreams and made them come true. So they have this they must see something in the mirror that I don't see. You know, I see doubt and apology <laughs> and, you know, and they just see, I don't know, like a halo around themselves or, or this ready, you know, this this amazing glow. And they think, well, I've done it once. I'll do it again. So even if it is in greatly reduced circumstances and some of them are only releasing, you know, they're self-releasing on their own labels or straight onto Spotify and they have enough of a listenership and they have enough self-belief and that kind, the kind of self-belief that won't be dented because they get a bad review or because they don't get any reviews. And so they think, well, you know, this is what I was born to do and I'm going to do it. And I think that's incredible. I, I would just be terrified or mortified or I'd look at the numbers and think they're not enough. They couldn't care less because maybe in, in the truest sense of the phrase, they are living in their own world and it's a beautiful world. It's a paradise. But they've managed to sustain that. So a lot of the people I've been interviewing are in midlife and beyond. So even if some critic could say that they are deluding themselves, plainly they're not because they are not working in a supermarket, they, which they wouldn't want to do. There's you know, nothing wrong with working in a supermarket, but they want just to be in front of a microphone every day with a guitar mm -hmm. you know, at their hip and, and playing. And they are doing that. So many of them are still doing it in stadiums and arenas and theatres. Others are doing it in, in, in a bar you know, uh, on, a, on a wet Thursday night in front of 50 people and are incredibly grateful for every 50 per people that turn up. And you think, wow, okay, good for you. We could learn a lot from them. Well, I, I think you're right. I think there's a lot to learn for, you know, for those of us that have never achieved that level of, uh, of infamy or even, you know, you know, use music as a, as a, as a, a, a career launch pad. But there's, I think there's lots yeah. to learn about you, you know, you're taking difficult times and then finding yeah. a way to make things better. And, you know, like I had does... also hoped that it might be of interest to today's pop stars going through some of the reviews over here have said that, you know, today's pop stars should read it, not because of anything I've said, but simply because of what the pop stars themselves have said, because all of them have made their way through this particularly difficult industry with most of their marbles intact you know they, they still have their sanity they still got so they haven't been you know this is an industry that chews people up isn't it and then spits them out well these some of the people i've interviewed may have been spat out but they you know they they got back you know they got back together again and 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 they haven't been completely pushed away and they are still doing what they want to do so i feel almost that they you could we could learn a lot from them as i said we could generally in life but today's pop stars could as well so they don't necessarily have to end up as casualties in the way that so many pop stars have one of my interviewees is um sananda maitreya who we know better as terence trent darby and he was talking about having ptsd and how you know he always wanted fame and when he got it it was difficult for him and he really struggled in the spotlight because he didn't want to perform in the way that the industry wanted him to. And his overriding point to me was that George Michael has died, Prince has died, Michael Jackson has died, he is still alive. So you don't necessarily have to be a victim, you can exist in this industry and by extension this life on your own terms. And the people in the book have. It is a fascinating book, and I appreciate you taking the time out to talk about it. It's really, really interesting, and 
and and and nicely done because this could have very easily have been a, a, all about you know where are they now and it is it is absolutely yeah. not that so congratulations oh. on, a, on, a, on a great job thank you so much <clears throat> and thanks for your time i really appreciate it the name of the book is exit stage left the curious afterlife of pop stars by nick durden thanks for listening to the podcast i hope you enjoyed it feel free to like it review it share it with everyone you know thanks again to canon provisions for all of their support you can support them by going to canonprovisions.com. You can also reach me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's musical podcast.